Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. Saturday was projected to be the best sports day of the year. We'll talk a little bit about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on Episode 8 of The Bridge. Well, happy Sunday, everyone. This being May 3rd, 2015. We had a little bit of everything if you're a sports fan. In baseball, the Red Sox were facing off against the Yankees. In basketball, we had Game 7 of the first round of the playoffs between the San Antonio Spurs and the Los Angeles Clippers. In horse racing, we had the Kentucky Derby. In football, we were wrapping up the NFL Draft. and boxing, we had what was deemed the fight of the century between undefeated Floyd Mayweather going up against Manny Pacquiao in a fight that probably should have happened five years back. But we'll get into that shortly enough and all the action that we had not only on Saturday but in the week of sports. I just wanted to draw your attention to what has happened behind the scenes here on The Bridge. Finally got some new hardware for the show. I'm sure you've all been on pins and needles waiting for me to enhance this program the best way that I could. Originally, I was just starting with a USB microphone hooked up to my laptop and using the free Audacity program. And I've had no complaints, really, since I started doing the show. I think this microphone, this Audio-Technica 2100, has been outstanding. You really can't tell the difference between this and some of the better and more popular of the podcast microphones But I knew once I started getting the hang of this that I wanted to move forward as far as the technology is concerned. And in order to do that, you have to do a ton of research to decide what the next piece to your machinery should be. And after about a month of research and trying to figure out what would be the next best thing for this program, I finally went out and purchased a mixer. So this episode is being produced through the Xenix 1204 USB mixer, which allows me to have up to four microphones put into this thing, as well as other gadgets and gizmos that I won't bore you with. Let's just say that there's some FX features on here to make my voice sound different. I could pan to the left, I could pan to the right, and I could do all sorts of things on here. And it's really like being back behind the microphone of the prestigious 99.5 WUSR, the University of Scranton radio station. You have a full board here at your disposal to do with it what you will, and hopefully this will add a little bit more flavor to the podcast. But really, I'm just excited to get this off the ground because I wanted to get different voices on this program, not only with interviews, but to have other thoughts on some of the different things we're going to be talking about in the world of sports. Hopefully my laptop and Audacity will be able to handle this new technology. My laptop is about eight years old. 
So it's been struggling with these newfangled mixers and microphones and things. I've got the microphone hooked up to the mixer here. Got a new pair of headphones. So what you're hearing is heard by me. And I'll also be able to hear the callers as well as many other different things that I wasn't able to do before making this purchase. The unfortunate thing for this is that for all of my shows, I have an opportunity to edit down if there's any mistakes or if I take a pause or if I say, um, and like, and you know, and uh, 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 which I don't usually do anyway, as I'm sure you've all picked up on. But should those moments come live while I'm doing a phone call, you're going to hear all of it. So we're going to put myself to the test as well to see how good of a voice I have when it comes to being an on-air interviewee and having a live conversation with a guest. So without further ado, let me dial up the phone here and we'll get our first guest of the bridge live and on-air and allow him to give his take on some of the more pressing topics in this week of sports. All right, so as I mentioned, without further ado, we're going to bring on the first guest in the bridge history, and I think it would behoove me to start this introduction much like this gentleman started his introduction when he used to host a radio program on the prestigious 99.5 WUSR Scranton in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, I'd like to introduce to you... Mike Mulraney, a good friend of mine who I've known for six years now, who is probably the best bar knowledge person you will ever meet in your life. And unfortunately, we're not sitting at a establishment that serves liquor to talk about what we're about to, because I'm sure it would just add some more flavor that we're not going to be able to provide here. I'm not drinking. He might be. We'll go from there. Mike, what's going on? Hey, John. Um, pretty honored to be the first guest in, in the bridge history. I am not drinking. Um, I believe this is a podcast for people of all ages. So it certainly limits my vocabulary, but we'll see how it goes from there. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, children of all ages can be listening to this. And we remember from our days in college, Sunday was usually a day of rest. We're lucky we even stood today. And it's time to sit back down. I guess a little bit of background on how I know Mike. We worked at the radio station together, as I mentioned. We were roommates senior year. To give you a little heads up on our sports knowledge and our love of sports, we skipped studying for a midterm to watch two of the wildcard games finish the night before the test and ended up having to drop the class because sports, I guess, outweighs criminal justice when you look at it that way i don't know i don't regret that decision do you we both got degrees oh yeah we still graduated on time and uh on another occasion we uh we missed several classes because we stayed up watching the last duke championship that's right that's right i actually had that jack strain seven page paper due for the most important speech i took in college but instead <laughs> i watched duke win the championship still got an a on the paper and still got an a in the speech i don't regret it at the all ugliest national championship game in 15 years oh horrendous horrendous uh that that call will live on forever it almost went in it almost went in thankfully this year they uh they erased that memory at least so we have that 
So bringing you onto the program, and humorously enough, you happen to be dealing with one of the topics we're going to get into because we had the fight of the century last night. Well into the night last night, I should say. Mike wrote an article entitled, Stop Complaining About Mayweather Pacquiao on worldbeat.com, so you could check it out there. You could also probably check him out on Twitter under the handle Mulraney. He has more Twitter followers than I do because he also talks politics since he is the uh, press coordinator down at the New York State Assembly, right in the heart of sunny, rustic Albany, New York, the state capital that most fifth graders probably don't realize is the case. Fair assessment, sir. Fair assessment. Unfortunately for them. So, as you know, I did not purchase the fight, the $100 pay-per-view fight that it seems like many Americans took the gamble on to purchase last night or went to their favorite watering hole to watch it as well, and I'm assuming pay some form of cover for it. How did you watch the fight? Because I'm sure you didn't throw down that $100. Oh, no. I went to a uh, co-worker's home, and uh, we got the whole office together and watched it over there. Well, you know, you guys have money, so... Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, some of them do up there in uh, in beautiful Albany. People have to have some sort of cash to throw around. Well, I just wanted to get some of your thoughts on the fight. I have my own. Everybody has their own. But going into this fight, a lot of people were hyping it up, as I mentioned, to be the fight of the century. And this was supposed to bring boxing back and get the blue-collared fan back involved with watching these fights. But as we know from Floyd Mayweather's past, he's not really one to have a lot of action in his fights. With 47 wins coming into this fight, were any of them exciting? Maybe a handful, but he's a defensive fighter and he knows how to get things done to at least get the win. So going into this, I really didn't expect much as far as the excitement is concerned. And as I read on Twitter all of last night, I guess that was the case as well. It seemed like a lot of people purchased the fight or got into the fight expecting it to be Ivan Drago and Rocky. Uh, now a lot of people were unaware of what Floyd Mayweather's boxing strategy is. He's the best technical boxer on the planet. He wins by points. He's only knocked out, I believe, two fighters in the last nine years. And one of them was the infamous you always keep your hands up knockout from last year or two years ago when the guy went to hug him and Mayweather caught him. It seemed... Like when you go, went through social media last night, a lot of people who purchased the fight or went out and paid a cover for it were upset that in the what they called the lack of action. A lot of that lack of action was Pacquiao couldn't hit Mayweather. Mayweather made him look slow all night. And the only thing that people are going to remember from this fight is Floyd with his arms up, taking a barrage from Pacquiao, and then putting his hands down and going, nope, two or three times in a row, which just none of the punches landed or had any effect. I think they said that Pacquiao landed less than 90 punches in the entire fight. He's a puncher, and when you put a puncher in there with somebody who's defensive, somebody who's as fast as Mayweather, they're going to look that bad. Yeah, I think the best part of the fight was when Floyd stepped back and just said, nope. <laughs> like when that guy hits a three-point shot in a pickup basketball game and just mean mugs you going down the court, that was basically like, you're not going to be able to compete with me. And you mentioned that Floyd Mayweather had outpunched or outlanded Pacquiao is actually somewhere around the ratio of two to one. I think Floyd was 148 to Pacquiao's 81. But humorously enough, in the 
fourth, fifth, and sixth rounds, maybe around there, Pacquiao, at least on paper, appeared to have won those 10-9. So did you think early on in those middle rounds or early middle rounds that Pacquiao had any shot of taking down Floyd? Or did you just think, well, he's bound to win a couple rounds? I think in those rounds, Manny won a few of them 10-9, at least on a couple of the scorecards, because of the crowd's reaction because of how hard he was hitting Floyd while Floyd had his guard up. It definitely seemed like at that point he might have been getting something together. But Floyd, to me, always seemed like he was in control. I think the one judge scored 10-9 on behalf of Mayweather in 10 of the 12 rounds or 9 of the 10 or 12 rounds. So it seemed maybe he was going to get some momentum, but he never really got through the guard of Mayweather. Yeah, it seemed that at least toward the end of the fight as well that Pacquiao was going to have to come out and just attack more than he had in the fight up to that point, and he didn't seem to do that. And it got to the point where Pacquiao seemed to think that he had the fight won, which I don't know why you would think that as a boxer, but somebody should have told him. It seemed like his trainers weren't really as amped up as they should have been to been like, listen, you have to go out and just go after him because by now he's probably won the fight on paper if it goes to a decision. So the only way you're going to get through him is through a knockout. And he just went out and basically fought the same fight. And Mayweather did his thing, kept his hands up, dodged and ditched and did the dancing with the stars type stuff that Twitter was all up in arms about, but it got him the win. It seemed as though they had a strategy and they didn't change what their game plan was. Right. It was like in a basketball game where you're losing at the half and then you go out and you stick with the same offense and defense you've been running all night. You're not accounting for the hot shooters. You're not accounting for rotations. They had a strategy that they were going to run regardless of what Floyd did. And it got to be the eighth or ninth round where I looked at the room and I told a few of my friends that he has to knock him out now in the next two or three rounds because he's not going to make up the point. Right. It just seemed that nobody like uh, Mick and Rocky too telling him you have to knock him out, you have to <laughs> knock him out. You know? It just seemed that there was no sense of urgency with Pacquiao at the end. And he went on the ropes. Everything he did after the fight made it seem like he thought he won on paper. And the paper wasn't even close. Right. The The final results were 116 to 112. There were two of those, and then 118 to 110. This, of course, bumps Floyd up to 48 nothing, and Manny Pacquiao stands at 57-6-2 with more KOs for his career, but those really don't mean anything. What I found interesting after the fight as well is when Pacquiao said that he should have won because Floyd Mayweather didn't do anything. Yeah, he might not have done anything, but neither did you. What did, what did you expect? Floyd just catches you with those small jabs every time you put your hands down the throw punch that he moved out of the way of. There was an article written by uh, the interview Oscar De La Hoya, who was the last big fight of this century when Floyd fought him. And Oscar De La Hoya said he doesn't hit hard enough to knock you out. When he catches you by surprise, it just stinks. And it's not something that you take account of, but when you get to paper, you see, like you said, that Floyd outlanded Pacquiao two to one. That's something that people have to take into account. Boxing isn't just haymakers and knockouts. Floyd knows how to win, and he knows that he doesn't have to hit you or exert as much energy in knocking you out than you have to for him. And a lot of people have said that they're a little bit 
disappointed with Mayweather for not making the fight exciting, but it seems like more people should be disappointed in Pacquiao. Kind of like they are who we thought they were type of thing where he's coming into this fight and people were thinking, how is he going to be able to go up against Mayweather? And at the end of the fight, it, it honestly didn't even look like he got hit that bad. I mean, we've seen people exit our favorite college establishment at the end of the night with more bumps and bruises than Pacquiao had on his face. So I don't really know why, as you mentioned, they didn't go out harder in those later rounds, knowing that they really needed to either knock him down or at least rattle him a little bit. And you mentioned it. They didn't change their game plan, and we ended up with a very unexciting fight, visually at least. But I'm sure Mayweather does not care because, again, he's now 48-0. I think a lot of it is this is such a big spectacle and such a big event, and people want boxing to be back so badly. People who hadn't really had an idea of who Floyd Mayweather was, other than his public persona where he plays the villain with his financial endeavors, with large-scale gambling, and then you have his personal endeavors where he spent 60 days in jail for domestic abuse last year or two years ago. People wanted to tune in because they heard Pacquiao was stronger than him and Pacquiao was going to knock this guy out. So I'm sure a lot of people would love to see get knocked out because of how he acts outside of the ring. And people have this kind of romanticized notion that boxing is like Rocky. It's like Cinderella Man. There's knockout. There's a lot of action. And I think people tuned in to see that kind of action, and they were just unfamiliar with the way Floyd fights. They're unfamiliar with the defensive technical style that's gotten him to 48-0. He wins on paper. That's what he does. And I think people got swept up in their emotions that they wanted to see Floyd get knocked out because of how he treated people, because of how he stripped the media credentials from Rachel Nichols and Michelle Beadle. And they wanted to see him get knocked down. And nobody got knocked down. It was the typical defensive technical fight that Floyd looks for and that Floyd's at the pace for. What he's also done better and what his promoters have done better than almost any other boxer in the world really is to get him matched up with people that they probably know deep down that he could beat. You know, as everybody's mentioned, this is a fight that probably should have happened five years ago when these fighters were closer to their primes. When it happens now, going into it, you just have to think that this is going to be Floyd's fight. And the betters, of course, in Vegas thought the same thing. We, of course, find out after the fight that Pacquiao said that he's battling a a shoulder injury that might make him actually miss time because of surgery. So, of course, we find that out after the fact, to which Mayweather, in true Floyd fashion, responds, well, I'm hurt, too. I'm not complaining about it. I don't think that would have changed anything either way if if he was, quote, unquote, healthy. I really don't don't see it going any different way. I don't think the fight would have been that much different five years ago. I didn't really see anything last night that suggested that Manny would have taken Floyd when Floyd was faster five years ago. Right. I think people just like Manny a little bit more back then because he was getting more KOs. And it was like, oh, boy, somebody wanted another face of boxing and they were making it Manny Pacquiao, which was fine for the sport. But I agree with you completely that if this happens five years ago, it's going to go the same way probably. And it would have been a lot more interesting considering how often Pacquiao has been put to sleep in the last few of his fights, where at least the last couple of times he's ended up face down or back down on the mat. Made for some good memes. Making a lot of good memes. 
So just to take a, a quick excerpt here from that story that you wrote that people can find, of course, at worldbeat.com. In Floyd's recent fights, he's aged better and more richly than a fine wine from the rolling hills of France. He's 48 now. He's Mr. Bob and Weave. He's the best technical boxer on the damn planet. A Tim Duncan-like reign of dominance that only the purest of fans can appreciate. If I could stand up and clap, I would. But this this technology and stuff I have going, I don't want to break. I don't it, want. I don't want you to ruin your level. Yeah, let's not do that. But that's well said, and and a great comparison there to Tim Duncan, which we'll get into shortly when we speak a little NBA hoops. But Floyd, of course, says after this fight, he's going to fight one more time sometime in September, and he's going to try and end his career at 49-0 and to tie himself with Marciano and, and get some of that lore to his record. But do you think he's going to end his career in September, or do you think this is just another one of his uh, promotional ideas where maybe he'll come back in the future? But I don't think he'll come back to do a rematch of this fight. I think this is done after last night. Yeah, I think in terms of fighting Pacquiao again, I don't think that's going to happen. I think Floyd showed everybody that he's faster than Manny, that when you get right down to it, Manny isn't going to be able to compete with him. I think the trash talk, the nope-nope, did that more than enough for everybody. I think that he's looking to fight Amir Khan. He's a British boxer in September, and that's how he's going to end it. He's got other endeavors. He runs the Mayweather Productions, of course. We've seen what Golden Boy Productions has done for Oscar De La Hoya and his financial future and what he's been able to do. And I think Floyd's going to look more to get into the business end of it. I think there's only so long that you can do the training that's necessary that you can put in that kind of time. And there's got to be a certain age where you figure getting punched in the face for a living is, is no longer a good idea. Right, and he's only 38 years old, so you know that he wants to enjoy the spoils from this sport for his whole life and not be one of those aged boxers. Like, you look at Muhammad Ali now, who has Parkinson's disease pretty bad, and other fighters that have had to go through their injuries. I'm sure he would rather spend his money on new vehicles than hospital bills. But I've been trying to think of a way to make boxing more exciting for the John Doe public, if you will, because everybody's been, I guess, saddened that boxing may be dead. And what are they going to do to bring it back? I'm trying to come up with something as to what they could do to help this sport out. And if you look at the other popular sports in the United States, You've got playoff systems that really bring people together while they're watching that sport. We were in the NBA playoffs now, and we'll be in them for another two and a half years until June. We've got the NCAA March Madness, which is almost next to none as far as tournaments are concerned. There's the World Series in baseball. You've got the Super Bowl, obviously, with the NFL. So it seems like what boxing might try to do or could consider doing is maybe put together some sort of seating system where you have the number one boxer in the world in a, in a certain class. Obviously, right now, Floyd Merriweather would be number one. And if you put different seeds on people and, and make them box more frequently than it currently stands and force them into having to face opponents, have a more serious system where this is when you're going to be fighting, then you have X amount of days to rest up. The unfortunate part is obviously the money aspect of everything. 
you're going to have to pay these boxers. These two guys last night, as we know, come in already making $100 million at least, win or lose. So you don't really have that hunger going into that match. So I've been trying to come up with some sort of system or, or idea as to what they can do to help the sport kind of a tournament of champions type thing over a couple month period where you you kind of have a bracket going and you go up against different guys the unfortunate part as we know is boxing doesn't have a commissioner and there's promoters and don king is still alive so i don't really know what they can do but it seemed like something like that might get people to come back into the sport i think part of what hurts boxing is that there's so many championship belts within the same weight class Right. Last night, I believe they unified four or five different championships in that one match where they have a different title belt for almost each promotion. And I believe Floyd came in with three championships and Pacquiao came in with two. Right. And they unified a certain amount of those titles, which is crazy. When when you get into the heavyweight championships, there's several of those. I think the MMA hurts boxing to an extent. Because in the MMA, actually, I think it was UFC UK, the Twitter account, they put out a tweet kind of trolling boxing and Floyd Mayweather going, this is what happens when you try to grab up and try to hug in the UFC. And it was Ronda Rousey slamming somebody to the mat, tried to grab her. It's a lot easier to market heavyweights. It's a lot easier to market Tyson when he was at the peak and when he was the baddest man on the planet. And it's easier to get Lennox Lewis or when George Foreman came out of retirement and fought when he became the oldest heavyweight champion of all time. That's kind of circusy and lends itself to being promoted in a certain way. The MMA, it's a lot more action if you're looking for something that's violent there. I think a lot of the head trauma stuff we see with the NFL, I think that hurts boxing because of people are now very cautious when it comes to concussions and CTE and long-term damage. Yeah, I, I think this fight was, was one of the best ways that boxing could kind of put itself on the map, especially if Pacquiao ended up winning because odds are Floyd probably would have wanted a rematch, so they would again get that. But to see people's reactions to what ended up happening and not being excited means that they're probably not going to throw down the $100 if there's ever a fight like this in the future, which they would probably be foolish to do anyway. And these two boxers are on the tail end of their careers, so they're going to be out of the sport. And you're going to have these guys that are known in the boxing world but not known in the blue-collar, normal world. There's no guys like you mentioned, Mike Tyson, or, or guys with any exciting nicknames coming up through the ranks that are going to be the next face of boxing. You just haven't really had that. Other sports have become more popular when guys like Tiger Woods came up through the ranks in golf, or Serena Williams took over in tennis, and baseball we're seeing Mike Trout and Bryce Harper and different guys take the torch, and guys in the NBA like Steph Curry and Harden are taking the torch over there. But boxing doesn't really have that face. Sans these two guys that were in the ring last night. Dominance, especially from somebody who's younger, like you're mentioning, like a Tiger Woods, or when somebody comes up and they're dominant and they're young, that's a sexy attraction. That's something people want to watch. People want to see Tiger win the U.S. Open by 13 strokes and just blow everybody out of the water. People wanted to see Tyson run across the ring and knock guys out in 43 seconds. People love watching Ronda Rousey. She's probably the most marketable UFC standout. And she won her last two matches combined in 30 seconds. People love that. I think Floyd would be more marketable 
I want to Floyd to be more marketable. He'd be a better face and ambassador for boxing if he didn't play up the villain aspects with his financial success and his personal issues and the domestic abuse trial and whatnot. But you need to have somebody come onto the scene and start dominating and dominate, knocking people out or having something that makes them stand out. And it's going to be very difficult because it's hard to know if there's anybody like that currently coming through the sport. Right. And plus the attention span of viewers is so small than what it used to be. I mean, last night's fight gets underway almost close to midnight. It doesn't end till around 1 a.m. It goes the, the full length, the, the full 12 rounds. People don't really have the attention spans to wait until, say, you know, September for Floyd's next fight or, or to wait these five or six years when we should have had this fight five or six years ago. They want things to happen quick. The good fighters are making money. The good trainers are with those good fighters making money. So they're not going to want to change anything. I don't really see an answer for it. What what more can we say? We we thought we might be in for a good fight last night, but as you mentioned, overhyped. The fight went as expected. As a boxing fan, you expected it to happen that way, and Floyd Mayweather remains undefeated. So I guess uh, we can move on, if you will. We'll talk a little bit NBA basketball. I know you dabble a little bit with the hoops. So we had the first round of the playoffs finally wrap up in the NBA, ending Saturday night. And the Clippers end up taking down the Spurs 111-109. Were you surprised by that end result? I've been telling anybody who will listen that over the last 18 years since Tim Duncan started, I feel every year the Spurs don't win. It's kind of fluky. I think that last Los Angeles-San Antonio series was the best basketball that we're going to see throughout the rest of the playoffs. I can agree with that. It was so exciting. It's almost unfair that we had to get that series in the first couple of weeks of the playoffs. Chris Paul hitting that shot at the end of the game was crazy. It was something that those playoff commercials are built around. I think Los Angeles is going to be a tough out for any team that's left in the West. Beating San Antonio is something that usually gets you right through to the finals. But we'll see if they can keep up with the Splash Brothers in Golden State. This playoffs in the first round have, have kind of been a disappointment except for this series you had a pair of six game series that really didn't have any drama there were three sweeps there were two other five game series that were pretty boring and then you had this series as you mentioned probably should not have been happening in the first round and that's always what's baffled me about the NBA is that for whatever reason they put emphasis on divisions And honest to God, I usually don't even remember there's divisions in the NBA because it really doesn't make a difference in the scheme of things when you talk about divisions. It's more important, obviously, in baseball and in football. In the NBA, you don't think divisions. You just think conferences, east and west. So you had Portland this year winning the division, and they were given the fourth seed, and they only had the sixth best record in the west. And then you had the Spurs on the final day of the season entering the game in second place, and then ending up in sixth place after losing the game. So it doesn't doesn't make any sense at all, logically. The Clippers would have then been the team playing the Blazers and probably would have won in five games. The Spurs would have played the Grizzlies, and that probably would have given them some problems, but I think they could have beat them. And then you'd have the Clippers obviously rested for this series. They're going to be playing against the Rockets. 
And then you'd have the Spurs playing the Warriors, which would be an immaculate series, something that we've almost been waiting to see happen, and we can't because the Clippers knock them off. But you have to give credit to the Clippers. This seems to be their coming out game where they finally had their star players make shots down the stretch. What's been a knock on Chris Paul for his career is he's never got the Clippers out of the second round of the playoffs. And then we had those couple games earlier in the series where Blake Griffin ends up missing a shot late and they had that goaltending basket interference to have them lose the game. They get blown out in game three and you think that the Spurs are going to take control. But for the Spurs to lose twice at home, have the opportunity to send the series home twice and not be able to do it, This was just not something we've seen yet from the Spurs, and you have to give the Clippers credit for doing that. Absolutely. I don't think anybody was more excited in Los Angeles than their owner, Steve Ballmer. Oh, absolutely. On the court, screaming. It was the last game in San Antonio where he's chewing on the towel, and he's got his face in his hand, and he's owned that team for one season. I'm worried for his health if if they make it out of the second round. If they get to a conference championship game or the finals, I don't know if he's going to be able to make it. He's <laughs> super fan number one for the Clippers. I think people might just go to games and watch gifts of Steve Ballmer. He's definitely he's given he's given Mark Cuban a run for his money when it comes to most vivacious and incredibly into his team as far as an owner is concerned. But we've yet to see oh. him pull a Mark Cuban and start barking at the refs and running onto the court during the game if he doesn't like a call. I don't know if he's going to be that type of owner. I think Cuban's time would be better off yelling at Rajon Rondo these days and not the officiate. <laughs> I think that's the Poor Rondo. Rondo took one of the biggest dives, I think, in in NBA history when it comes to them just sitting him on the bench and saying, your back hurts, doesn't it? You're not playing anymore this series. We're not even going to give you whatever you were supposed to get as far as playoff wages are concerned. Good luck. But, of course, you know, the Lakers will sign yeah, and enjoy enjoy the rest of your career in Los Angeles, it appears, because they'll probably throw money his way. What have they got to lose? So we have the, the Clippers moving on. This was, at least in Game 7 in particular, was a game that you really could see what they're able to do if everyone on their team is playing fluidly and with the potential that they're capable of. You had Blake Griffin getting a triple-double, and nobody really even knew about it after the game. A quiet triple-double, if you will. I don't even know if those are possible. The only one that gets those is probably LeBron. Chris Paul has one of the games of his life. J.J. Redick, my boy, with some timely three-pointers. I think it was around the two-minute mark when Tony Parker had an opportunity to put the Spurs up five. They had a three-point lead. He had like a two-on-one type thing going. He could have either dribbled it out or take a pull-up jumper, pass it. He ends up going for a floater, and that rims out. J.J. Reddick comes down, hits a three, and they get a five-point swing with around two minutes to go in that game that broke the Spurs, really. So that was exciting to see. You had you know Crawford doing his thing off the bench. You had DeAndre Jordan not play in the fourth quarter till it mattered, so they didn't have to follow him. So it, this seems like the Clippers team that we've kind of been waiting for for the past three, four, five years. All these pieces they've been able to put on this team haven't really amounted to what people expected perhaps this is the year for them to do that they have to go through James Harden however in the Rockets James Harden of course not the MVP second to Steph Curry who we'll get to but do you think 
the Rockets will take down the Clippers, or do you see the Clippers being able to take down this Houston Rockets team that another team that's been playing well in the first round of the playoffs coming together? Dwight Howard's actually doing stuff. Where do you see that series going? I think it's going to be a very interesting series because neither starting center could probably be on the floor in the entirety of the fourth (laughs) quarter for the last four or five minutes of the quarter based on the score and the situation. It's Howard and DeAndre Jordan. Neither of them can make free throws consistently. So we're going to see a lot of Chris Paul. We're going to see a lot of Blake Griffin. When it comes to Houston, we'll see what James Harden can do without Howard, his battery made on the floor. I think we'll see a Clippers team that will take the series in six. I think James Harden can power them to at least one or two wins just on his own sheer ability. We're going to see a lot of Howard or Jordan. It's going to be in quarters one through three. And if they're lucky, the first half of the fourth. Right. I I agree with you. I think the Clippers could win this in six. I think the biggest factor for both teams is going to be the benches. And I think the Clippers win that battle as far as their reserves are concerned with guys like Jamal Crawford giving you minutes. Matt Barnes, who's still in the league, can play defense. I do agree, though, that Harden can easily win them a couple games, especially at home, just on what he's done throughout the season. But the Clippers should win this series. They might have a little bit of a layover because the Spurs series took so much out of them, especially if Chris Paul's hamstring ends up hampering him in the first couple of games. So you might see them drop an early game or two, but I think in the long run, they pull this one out. Back to the Spurs real quick. You mentioned Tim Duncan's dominance, not only comparing him or comparing Floyd to Tim Duncan, but Tim Duncan's Spurs. Do you think this is the end of the big three in San Antonio with Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili and Tim Duncan being the face of that franchise and bringing them the success that they've had for the past two decades? I think the story came out today when Manu was specifically talking about it's possible he could retire this offseason. I believe Tim Duncan's contract is up at the end of this year. Yeah. He'll become a free agent. We'll see if San Antonio offers him a courtesy contract to come back. He played very well in the playoffs. He had a double-double over 20 and 10 in Game 7. He played very well. I think he played defense very well on Blake and DeAndre when he had to play. In terms of face of the franchise, there's rumors that they're going to get LaMarcus Aldridge, which can really bolster that team and prepare them for the future. I think if Manu retires, we might see Duncan. I think Duncan and Pop are a package deal. They're either going to find a way to keep Duncan and let him play the most efficient 26 minutes of basketball you've ever seen with Pop on the bench, or they're both going to end up leaving. Yeah, Duncan's going to be 39 this year, and or when next year comes around. But I think he could probably play at least two more seasons with what he was able to do this year. It it really didn't hamper him that he's on paper old. He's still putting up double doubles, and he's played I think seventy plus games this season. So it's not like he had the injury bug. He's still going out there and playing. He'll obviously sit when Popovich sits his starters every once in a while, but he could probably put out two more years for them. And I think with the emergence of Leonard and Danny Green and those younger guys, if he can stay around for a couple more seasons and groom them a little bit more, it might help them when they have to, in a way, rebuild when those three guys leave. Because Tony Parker was hurt. Well, at least he looked hurt. He didn't look good. 
and he's only 32. And for him to to not have the series that you expect him to have, I think if he does, they end up winning that series. But because he was hampered by whatever, just didn't have a good series, that really hurt them. Danny Green didn't really show up until Game 7, which was surprising. I agree with you, though, that Pop and Duncan are probably a a 1-2 type thing where they'll either stay together or leave. We, of course, got the great Greg Popovich quote where they'll probably be back because the paychecks are still nice. So we'll see if he oh. uh, we'll see if he still does that. Moving over to that other series now in the West, the Warriors today beat the Grizzlies in game one by 15 or 16. It wasn't really close, which isn't surprising at all. And Steph Curry earlier, or tonight I should say, was named the league MVP, though that won't be announced officially for a couple more days. He's a guy that averaged, I believe, 24 a game, eight assists, two steals, and he I think he only missed two games this year, leading the Warriors to a franchise record 67 wins. He took 8.1 threes per game, made 44% of them. Nearly half of his 16 shots per game were threes, but he was still shooting almost 50%. And I've always come up with this for Steph Curry. If he didn't win MVP, he's a guy that you and I have seen in life where you go play pickup basketball, you've got your squad of 10 guys, this little dude walks into the gym shooting around. He asks to play. You, of course, oblige. You know, you don't pick him first or anything. He'll come down a couple possessions, chuck up some ill-advised threes and miss, and everybody will start getting pissed with him. Like, what are you doing, dude? Just throwing up these shots. Then eventually he'll start coming down and making them. And before you know it, he's the guy you're passing the ball to. He's dribbling in and out of people, finding the open guy. And then you want him to come back every week you play pickup basketball. I think that's Steph Curry. He's developed into the best shooter in the league. Sometimes he shoots when he maybe shouldn't. But he's that guy where he'll make a couple and you just you, you let him have one. You let him have one or two. Throw it up there. See what happens. If it doesn't go, it doesn't go. But he's your guy. And he's definitely the main reason why the Warriors had such a great season this year. Absolutely. I think Steve Kerr has that team in a great position. He obviously inherited a pretty decent roster from Mark Jackson last year. It's very rare that you come in and you have a Steph Curry and a Clay Thompson and a defensive presence like Bogut. That team's so stacked, David Lee got his first minutes of the playoff today in a blowout <laughs> that he only got into because there was foul trouble on the floor. It's nice to see that Steve Kerr avoided the Knicks debacle. That's partially Jim Dolan's fault by already low-bridging the first individual that Bill Jackson wanted to coach the team. So that's great. Good to see Steve Kerr getting some level of success with this roster. They put him in a great place, and I think that in the current series, it's going to be difficult for Memphis to run with Golden State. I like Zebo a lot. I like Marcus a lot. Conley being out with that broken face is not great for them. Golden State looks to be clicking on all cylinders. They played lights out in this game. Today, it wasn't as close as the score suggested. The blowout was a lot bigger earlier in the third quarter and at halftime. So I think they're cruising, and Steph Curry was the correct choice for MVP this year. I think that's another series you could see where 
the Grizzlies might try and steal a game on their home floor, much like the Pelicans did against the Warriors. The Grizzlies might be able to hold on to that if they go into a fourth quarter with a 20-point lead. You wouldn't think that they would give it up as well, but you never know. I think Memphis might steal a game or two, but I can't see the Warriors losing this series. I can't see the Warriors not making it out of the West. It seems like they're the team to beat and they can match up with the remaining teams left in the playoffs, whether or not the Clippers end up beating the Rockets or vice versa. I really think that they're the team to beat, and I don't see anyone stopping them until they get to the NBA Finals, and they could end up playing either the Cavs or the Bulls, who is another series going on. The Bulls, on paper, you would think, look or should be a lot better than they actually have been, Derrick Rose is back, thankfully, for Bulls fans and for the team itself. The Bulls in general, it seems, aren't as good as they were a couple years ago, even though they have the same players. I don't know whether or not it was because they had that underdog role a couple years ago where you had guys like Taj Gibson dunking over D. Wade and LeBron, and you were like, oh, who are these Bulls? Wait until they get healthy in a couple more years. But they haven't really had that yet. They could. Joe Kim Noah, Jimmy Butler, they have players on their roster that could compete with the Cavs who now have to go through this series without Kevin Love. How do you see that series going up now that the Cavs are going to be relying fully on Kyrie Irving and LeBron James? I think that early on here with J.R. Smith's two-game suspension for punching Jay Crowder in the face, the Bulls have to win either one or both of these games to set themselves up in a position to win the series. There are points in the last series where Noah looked old. It's starting to look like Thibodeau's strategy of playing Jimmy Butler every single night, all night, is starting to wear on Butler, starting to wear on Noah, the amount of minutes he's playing. We're going to see what they're going to get from those guys in this series, but their best chance is to get out ahead or take away home floor from the Cavs in the first couple of games with J.R. Smith hurt. Without Smith, without Love, you start looking at the Cavs bench, and it's kind of a who's who of guys you wanted on NBA Jam 2006 (laughs) with Sean Marion, and there's Mike Miller with the same three working vertebrae he's had for five years. There's barnstorming crew that LeBron brings with him everywhere who rides the coattails and tries to vulture championships from other role players. We're going to see exactly what Sean Marion has in the tank, what James Jones has in the tank. (laughs) Shockingly missing from the conversation is Ray Allen, who didn't make the trip with LeBron James, but was also up in the air for that. I don't really know if the Kevin Love injury is going to affect them that much. When LeBron was with the Heat and Chris Bosh didn't have to play or was hurt, he would just fill in that four spot and still score what he usually scores, even more so. And he just wouldn't dish as many assists out because they were looking for him to score the points. So it's not like he has a problem playing the four spot. We've seen what Kyrie Irving can do this season and in the playoffs so far. What's going to be a factor for the Bulls, as you mentioned, not only taking at least one game in the first two, is if they can keep their guys healthy for a remainder of what could be a six or seven game series. We still don't know if Derrick Rose can go as hard as he's gone in the past. Joakim Noah's been a little banged up this year. We know Paul Gasol is as soft as yesterday's butter. So he, on the defensive end, lucked out in a way that Love is out. So he won't have to battle with him. He'll probably be able to control the boards a little bit. 
But I think it's it's going to be a better series, at least in the first couple of games, hopefully to get some discussion about it at least. If the Bulls are able to take one game, the media will at least have something to talk about. If the Cavs win those two games to start, I, I think it's it's going to be over in five games at most. That other series that no one cares about, myself and I'm sure you as well, is the Wizards and the Hawks. The Wizards won game one after trailing by 12 or 10 in the third quarter. They won by six or eight. I don't remember the final score. I, I don't care that much. The Wizards just seem to be playing great basketball, even though I can only name about three of their players. Who do you think is coming out of that series, the Wizards or the Hawks? I think the deeper we get into the playoffs and Atlanta sticks around, they come into that issue of who's going to take the last shot. And is it going to be Kyle Korver? Is it going to be Al Horford? Who are they going to look to get the ball in their hands down two or three with seven seconds left in the clock winding down? Who's going to want to take that shot? Who are they going to draw up to take that shot? When you look at Washington, they have a myriad of guys who you would want to take that shot. Paul Pierce is the new assassin in the playoffs. He goes to Brooklyn last year in the playoffs, screaming, this is why you got me. (laughs) This year year in the playoffs, he went off again in the last series, yelling at the other team. He always looks revitalized during this time of the year in April and May and moving into June. He's been playing efficient basketball in his role with Washington. We're going to see what happens with Beal's injury tonight. Uh, he rolled his ankle. Starting off early here, Atlanta isn't a sexy team to pick. They got seven or eight guys on that team who are solid players, and they just seem to put it all together this year. Unfortunately for them, it's like the longer they play, the more their opponents can learn about them and shut down what's worked for them in the regular season when they were flying under the radar such that if you run around with Kyle Korver and don't let him shoot, he's going to have an awful game. Don't leave him wide open because he's going to make those three-pointers. Yes, they're a team that's built for regular season success, and when you have to play them seven times in 25 days or however the NBA's elongated playoff system is where they play 40 games in 40 nights, everybody plays one basketball game a week on even days or whatever the NBA designed their schedule to be. They're a team that you can figure out third or fourth time you play them, and they had a little bit of an issue dispatching Brooklyn in the first round. Right to see it, Deron Williams is starting to like basketball again. You look at what they have, and then you look over at Washington with Beal and Wall and Gortat and Pierce, caliber of players you would expect to see in championship rounds. And you don't really see that with Horford and Corver and the guys on the Hawk. I think what we saw today from Washington, we're going to see a lot more of. And I think that it's going to end up being Washington and either Chicago if they can take advantage of J.R. Smith's absence or they're going to end up playing Cleveland and LeBron. I think they're going to get through Atlanta likely in five or six games. I would be shocked if it went seven. Well, I guess real quick, the last thing there is on the table is a a brief roundup of the NFL draft because we're not going to go through every damn pick because we have lives. And as Bill Burr would say, who would sit in front of the television and watch the NFL draft? It's like going to a graduation without knowing any of the kids at the graduation. They're going (laughs) to give you the list. You'll know who's on the team. Just wait for it to come out. 
but I have the first five picks at least written down here. And for all the talk that has happened for the past couple of weeks on what the Eagles are going to do with their quarterback situation, if the Titans will trade up or down, will the Bucks take Jameis Winston? Is the 75 or 100 people that they interviewed and hours upon hours of research they've done going to be enough to change their minds, et cetera, et cetera? And the draft basically, except for the Redskins, went chalk, if you will. Jameis was number one to the Bucks. Marcus Mariota was number two to the Titans. They'll play each other now in week one, which I'm sure the schedule people are incredibly happy about because last year those two teams combined for, I believe, four wins. So that wouldn't have been that exciting if that didn't happen. The Jags took Dante Fowler, the OLB from Florida. Oakland took Amari Cooper as wide receiver from Alabama to help out Derek Carr, which was a pretty decent pick, I think, somebody to have him throw it to. And then the Redskins maybe reached a little bit with uh, Brandon Scherf from Iowa. And that was the top five. The Jets took Leonard Williams then as the sixth pick from USC. Todd Gurley went to the Rams at the 10th pick. And then everything else was just, I, I tuned out. I, I stopped caring because... That's like Bill Burr said, I'll just look at it on my phone when I get the updates for the teams I care about. So that's that's where it stands. Were you surprised at how the first round of the draft went at all? I think I was surprised at how mundane it was. There were no trades. We knew that Jameis Winston and the Tampa Bay Bucks staff had had extensive conversations and interviews and pro days and workouts. It was kind of a poorly kept secret that Jameis was going to go number one. I think that's a great pick for Tampa Bay. I know a lot of Tampa Bay fans feel iffy on it because of some of Jameis's issues, the crab legs episode, the sexual assault investigation that he was ended up being cleared by the Florida State University of any wrongdoing. There's a lot of people who have been respecting the NFL for a long time who said this kid can really read defenses. He's very smart. That he understands the quarterback position. And I think what they need there on that team is somebody who can force the ball to Mike Evans and Vincent Jackson and then spell him with the spelling with the run game when the opportunity arises. They've got two world class wide receivers there. Trouble with him is that division's very tough with New Orleans and Atlanta and Carolina and they're just gonna have to get him used to playing in that division that's probably one of the best, if not the best in the NFC. What helps the Bucks at least is some of the knocks on Jameis Winston was like, well, he's not too good of a quarterback. He just happens to have great receivers that surrounded him at Florida State, especially in his freshman year. Well, now he's going to get that at Tampa Bay. As you mentioned, they have a great wide receiving core. And I think Lovey Smith is a good head coach to make sure that Jameis Winston keeps his head on his shoulders and really has him focused on the task at hand. So my question to you is, how long do you think it's going to be before they just shut him down from social media and just have some intern run his social media sites, the Twitter, the Instagram, the Facebook? He's not going to be able to touch any of that, in my opinion. I just don't know when it's going to happen. I think one of the first actions they're going to do is have a discussion about what is expected of him on social media. I think that Jameis is a funny guy. I like the crab with legs thing. I thought it was funny. I think it's something that was blown out of proportion a little bit to start questioning a guy's draft stock because he went in and his friend was going to hook him up with a free lunch and I guess his friend wasn't in that day, whatever the story goes, where Jameis is basically thinking he's going to get a free lunch and it never occurred. 
that's what college is. College is about trying to find out what you can get for free. That's right. Uh, one of the best things we ever did for the radio station was get T-shirts. People love T-shirts. If people were offering you a free lunch, we're familiar with a lot of people who seek out free lunches. <laughs> so, that's right. So it's it's something that I, I thought was overblown. I think James is a very talented quarterback. I think he's going to be fine. I think everybody's going to be really excited for that Tampa Bay-Tennessee matchup. Two teams who play in very tough divisions. We'll see what kind of future they have. I think it certainly worked out schedule-wise. The Crab Lakes picture was really the only thing that was newsworthy other than the fact that the Jets and the Raiders didn't screw up a pick. Right. And uh, Roger Goodell called his, Marcus Mariota, uh, Marcus Mariota. Yes. <laughs> Which is crazy because when they showed the picture of him getting ready to call Jameis, it had the phonetic spelling of the name right. underneath his name on the card. It was almost like a graduation card you give to the <laughs> superintendent or the principal, and they, there's no way for them to screw the name up and somehow Goodell did it. Well, he didn't um, want to be there. He's got things. Oh, yeah. He, he, I'm sure he's got a lot of stuff going on, but you would have figured the two names you would absolutely know going up to the podium without the card would be Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota. And for Marcus, the poor kid, the Titans give him a call to tell them that they're going to draft him, and the call drops before they even say anything. So he was basically pranked by his first NFL team. So not a good day for Marcus. I don't know if he had any yeah. crab legs, but he should, he should sure get some. I'm sure the contract some. will make up for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure in Hawaii he'll, he'll find some other ways to, to enjoy his night. Were you surprised yeah. by your Indianapolis Colts taking a wide receiver in the first round instead of trying to boost up their defense or offensive line? I believe the three or four picks following that were defensive picks, which is good. Everybody knows they have a world-class offense. Their problem is they can't stop anybody, especially now they lost Sergio Brown to Jacksonville. He was the guy who got popular for doing the Ric Flair promo. Right. At the end of games, specifically at the end of that playoff game, give me two claps in the Ric Flair. So we'll see what kind of defense they mount next year. They're still going to score 40 points a game. They play against Tennessee twice and Jacksonville twice. They kind of ruled that division. They ruled that division for a long time, regardless of whether it was luck or manning. Though, first on wide receiver, that's great. But the four or five picks following it that were all defensive is more of what kind of style I was hoping for. I think we've covered the full gamut then of all the exciting sports that happened over the week and on Saturday. We didn't touch on the Kentucky Derby because American Pharaoh won the favorite one. It was a crappy day for people in Vegas. Not that exciting. No, not that exciting. It went from five to two to three to one overnight. So it was pretty much a short thing. You started off in the worst gate, ended up closing the gap and winning pretty handily. We'll see how he handles the Preakness and the Belmont. So, yeah, we had that. Hockey happened, but we don't need to touch on that yet. We'll talk about it when uh, the hashtag that's most popular on Twitter, because it's the cup. When we get to the cup, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I'd like to thank Mike for coming on to the program, being the first different voice to come onto the bridge. Always a pleasure speaking. Great job. We'll talk soon. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Not a problem, sir. So as I mentioned, that was Mike Mulraney. You can follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Mulraney, and he wrote that piece as we discussed going over the Manny Pacquiao-Floyd Mayweather fight, which you can check out at worldbeat.com. So I think we could wrap this up now. We've covered everything I wanted to get to that happened over this week of sports. 
Again, thanks to Mike for coming on to this podcast. We'll have plenty of guests coming up in the future, some interviews with different people and some different voices to go over, some pressing topics for whatever happened throughout that week of sports. Depending on what the most pressing topic is, we'll have some different voices there to add a little bit more flair to this program. You can listen to previous podcasts at my website at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same name, at London Bridge. You could subscribe to this podcast on iTunes through my website as well and get this podcast as soon as it's put to press. You could also listen to these episodes on the SoundCloud or Stitcher apps for your long train rides to and from work. Thanks a lot for listening. It was a lot of fun this week with a new voice. Next week, we'll dive into the NBA playoffs. We'll talk some MLB. We'll talk some NFL and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Thank you.